0: I'm your host, Al Smith, and I want to thank you for joining me to be entertained, but at the same time, be educated in your faith. Uh, Bishop Sheen is going to be giving a reflection today entitled, Fears and Anxiety, and it comes from his television show, Life is Worth Living, and uh, we all have fears, and many of us suffer from anxiety, so Bishop Sheen will help us today. And we'll spend the second half of our program studying a catechism lesson together on the topic of the divinity of Christ. we hear these reflections, let us say a short prayer together. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou among women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners, now and at the hour of our death. Amen. Our Lady, Seat of Wisdom, pray for us. And please now enjoy this reflection from the Venerable Archbishop Fulton J. Sheen on fears and anxiety.
1: Friends, oddly enough, the best way to give you some idea of what we are talking about tonight is to give you the definition of a prune A prune is a worried plum. (laughs) So I'm going to say something about worry or more properly about fear. A little girl went to her daddy once and said, Daddy, are you afraid of cows? No. Are you afraid of snakes? No. Are you afraid of long woolly worms? No. Daddy, you aren't afraid of anything but mom, are you? (laughs) Well, what is fear that so much concerns our modern world? Fear, actually, is related to love, as all the passions are. And fear is the emotion that arises in us when there is a danger facing something or someone that we love. And the mother has fear for her children. We will talk about various kinds of fear. First of all, fears in the ego, and then fears outside of the ego, but principally dealing with effects. One could give the kinds of fears. Now, first of all, in the ego or in the self. One of the first effects of fears, and this seems very strange, is laziness. Well, how is laziness related to fear? Well, a person so loves his own physical comfort and ease that he's afraid of work. Very simple. I heard of a, of an old couple down south. The husband was leaning up against the house facing out into the road. The wife was in a rocker, but she was facing the house the porch. And she said, what's that noise out in front? He said, that's Jim McCombs' funeral going by. Then he added, yes, he said, about 20 hacks. My, she said, I'd love to see that funeral. I wish I was turned around the other way. (laughs) Then, another effect of fear is gambling. Here I'm speaking of professional gamblers. A professional gambler is one who is afraid of the responsibilities of life. And so he lives in a world of fantasy and dream in which he's always just about to make a great fortune. Two of them were coming home from the racetrack one day, and one of them said, you know, today I broke even. boys, that I needed. Another is a of fear is hypochondria. Uh, there are some people who make themselves mentally sick. Actually, there are cases on record, for example, of men saying, you know, if I had not been sick, I would have been one of the greatest tennis players in America. Or if I had not been sick, I would have written the finest novel that was ever produced in America. Or if I were not sick, I would have been a millionaire and so forth. Now, it's very likely... That he became sick, made himself really sick, in order to avoid facing the responsibility of his own boats. In the San Francisco earthquake, there were 30 people who hadn't walked in 30 years, got up and walked. (laughs) Then another effect of fear is um, lying. some I have a feeling of deep inferiority discover that by boastfulness and exaggeration that they uh, convince others of their importance. I know of a little girl that was always lying. She was given a St. Bernard dog. Once, I once had a St. Bernard dog. He had the instinct of a lap dog and the instep of a rhinoceros. <laughs> well, this little girl was given a St. Bernard dog and she went out and told all the neighbors she had been given a lion. And her mother called her and said, Now, listen, I told you not to lie, you go upstairs, tell God you're sorry. Promise God that you will not lie again. So she went upstairs and said her prayers. When she came down, the mother said, Did you say your prayers? Did you tell God you were sorry? The little girl said, Yes, I did. And God said that sometimes... He finds it hard to tell a dog from a lion.
0: <laughs>
1: <laughs> then another effect is what is called shamefacedness or red facedness, embarrassing moments. Take, for example, a woman taken in adultery mentioned in the Gospel. Here there is a fear of having one's reputation, and honor, either destroyed or exploited. I once knew of a man who was seated next to a very charming lady at a banquet table. He had just met her at the table, and for want of something better to say, he saw someone in the far end of the room whom he knew, and calling the attention of the lady, he said them, See that man down there? Yes, said the lady. He said, you know, I hate him. And she, in righteous indignation, said, I beg to tell you, that is my husband. (laughs) And he said, madam, that's why I hate him. (laughs) Not everybody gets out of difficulties quite so easily. Now, these are the effects of fear in Diego. What happens to us? Now there are other effects of fear because of what happens to us. Take, for example, something that happens to us because of its magnitude. Sunset in the Mediterranean, the sight of the Alps, or the two infinities that always made Pascal wonder, the infinitely little and the infinitely great. The effect of magnitude is to create in one wonder. Wonder is the beginning of all philosophy. Aristotle tells us that is the beginning of all philosophy because it makes us ask, no, my angel needn't bother now. Uh, washing away this because I I suppose he wondered why we got over here but we got a little signal to move. I was facing the wrong camera. (laughs) Then another effect of fear is when something is very unexpected. Think for example the explosion of an atomic bomb. And or something unexpected that's happening to me now. These two clocks are not exactly alike, and I'm wondering just on what second I'm going to finish. So if you'll give me a signal... (laughs) So will the angel flutter around me and tell me sometime which clock I'm to follow? Such as the explosion of an atomic bomb creates stupor. And the third effect, and this is very important, is where there is something that happens to us in which we feel helpless. And that creates what is known as anxiety. There is a tremendous disproportion between our own resources and the hostile forces that oppose us. This anxiety is rather normal, particularly in the physical order. And here we leave these old descriptions of, they are very old. I might tell you that I got all of this out of a book that was 700 years old. But there's a new kind of anxiety. And now I'm just a little anxious about my angel cleaning my blackboard, and as soon as he does, I will come back to you to tell you about the new kind of anxiety. This new kind of anxiety is very modern. And it is the anxiety with which uh, many psychiatrists and psychoanalysts deal it is an anxiety that is rather abnormal than normal. The normal anxiety is something that makes us afraid because of what happens on the outside, that is to say, outside of us. The abnormal. Anxiety, and this is a very modern one, makes us fear because of something that happens inside of us. The first kind of anxiety is physical. The second kind of anxiety is mental or psychical. These are very normal fears. For example, fright during a thunderstorm. Being chased by a bull on the farm. Danger of being struck and trapped. But the new anxieties are coming from the inside of man himself, from whence they should never come. The result is too many modern minds are very much like this. This is the conscious part of their existence. And down here is the unconscious, and the unconscious is seething with all kinds of repressions. There are even coiled serpents in that unconscious and subconscious mind. They are constantly striving for some kind of There are many effects that are produced by this abnormal anxiety or fear... And of them we will mention three. The first is what is known as a compulsion neurosis. Did you ever hear about the woman who lived in a bed of neurosis? I'll give you a minute to get that. First of all, a compulsion neurosis is something that we are forced to do because we have not done what we ought to do this is one of the very common manifestations of subjective anxiety I could think of no better way to describe it uh, than to take the description that was given by Shakespeare you remember the great tragedy of Macbeth and in that magnificent story Lady Macbeth encourages her husband to murder the King Duncan while he sleeps in order that he might seize the crown and be the King. When he does it, he's frightened and afraid. Lady Macbeth says to him, Think not on these ways for they will drive you mad. In other words, do not think of your guilt. Suppress it and repress it. Lady Macbeth then kills the grooms, smears them with their own blood and she says to Macbeth, now my hands are your color. But I should shame to wear a heart so white making fun of anyone who had a guilty conscience. Lady Macbeth's conscience is asleep while she is awake. So many in our world who are constantly repressing the sense of guilt while Lady Macbeth sleeps, her conscience is awake. And she walks in her sleep. She sees blood in her hands, at least she thinks she does. She says, will not all the perfumes of Arabia sweeten this little hand? Will not great Neptune's oceans wash away these stains? Nay, rather, they will the multitudinous seas incarnadine, turning the green one red. And for a quarter of an hour at a time, she would wash her hands. That was the compulsion neurosis, coming from the fear of punishment because of the guilt of murder. Instead of purifying her conscience, the compulsion neurosis came out in the washing of the hands as it does in so many compulsive neuroses in our modern world. That's the first effect. And the second effect of this wrong subjective fear and anxiety is terror. Terror is the fear that comes from being terrorized. Terror is something that seizes the persecutor. Whenever you find a man who has been cruel to others, he always lives in terror. I was talking to one of the greatest artists in the world, and I asked him when he came to America what he considered the most interesting face in America that he saw. And he mentioned the name of the then representative of the Soviet Union and the United Nations. He said, his face intrigues me. If I were painting it, I should paint a skull. we know that some of their representatives, when they leave our hotels in New York, leave sometimes their guns under the pillows, bullets in the night tables, terror, terror because they know they have taken the lives of many and have been responsible. And there's no blotting out a guilty conscience, though they deny both God and conscience and morality. And then finally, there is horror. This modern thing of horror or rather dread. Dread is the fear of nothing. Think of how many there are in our world today who have no sense whatever of a plan of life. They are, if I may describe it, something like this. I'm telling you what, this is a ship. This is a... uh, A mast of the ship. This is the water of the ship. This is a crow's nest. No respectable crow would ever be seen in it either. (laughs) And that's the ladder going up to it. And here's my usual man, the only kind of man that I can draw. I'll get another art scholarship for this one. The modern man does not know where he's going. He's not certain of his destiny. This is a storm at sea and he's always in danger of being thrown back into the nothingness from which he came. And so he lives in a terrible sense of dread. He's fearing the wrong things, our modern man. And much of modern culture is destined to try and suppress that dread. Sleeping tablets, opiates, constant love of pastime and pleasures, all these are attempted to suppress this awful gnawing feeling of nothingness and the dread of nothingness. Why is it that a cow never has dread? He never has a psychosis. A hen never has a neurosis. Why is it none of these things have dread? It's simply because none of these things in lower creation, nothing below man, has a soul who's born for the infinite. It takes eternity to make a man despair. And if they only knew it I said they're fearing the wrong things. We used to fear God. Then we began to fear fellow man. Now we begin to fear what? We begin to fear ourselves, something that we should never fear. How will they get out of it? They will get out of it by realizing that fear is the pathway to peace. But there are two kinds of fear. There's the servile fear and there's a filial fear. Servile fear is a fear of punishment which they all have, a fear of judgment. The filial fear is a fear of reverence. For example, servile fear. The child disobeys the mother and goes to the mother and said, Mommy, I'm sorry I, I did wrong. Now I can't go to the picnic, can I? And the other child just throws her arms around the mother's neck and cries and said, Mommy, I'm sorry I hurt you. Servile fear or the fear of punishment or the dread, can be the starting point for filial fear or the fear of reverence. All who have dread have within themselves a longing. They all have misery. What they need and what they want is mercy. And if therefore they will face love itself or perfect love, cast out fear, then they will come indeed to someone whom they will love so much that they will be honest and good and just. Not because they dread punishment, but simply because they have reverence for someone whom they love. No one will ever be good over a long period of time simply because he's told to keep a law. He will be good only because he would not want to hurt someone that he loves. Why be good? Because there comes to one the sight of wounded hands and riven feet. There comes to one a picture of one who has been hurt. And so we try to be good because we love God and we love him so much we do not want to hurt him. That is the end of fear.
0: Our sincere thanks to the Fulton J. Sheen Company who has given us permission to share these broadcasts with you today. I invite you to make Bishop Sheen a part of your family audio and video collection. You can call them toll-free at one 357 4336 or visit the official website for purchasing Catholic family videos and DVDs of Archbishop Fulton J. Sheen's recordings from the Catholic television series, Life is Worth Living. The web address is www.bishopsheen.com. You will find rare collections of Catholic family video recordings addressing a variety of topics such as morality, Mary the Mother of God, angels, Catholic Holy Days, and other faith-based subjects. So call toll-free today. 1-866-357-4336 one 357 4336 Again, one eight six six three five seven four three three six 357 4336 And on the web, www.bishopsheen.com. And on behalf of Bishop Sheen, God love you. You are listening to Radio Maria Canada. We now continue with the program... Your Life is Worth Living Hosted by Al Smith Hello Radio Maria family and thank you for joining me for another edition of Your Life is Worth Living I appreciated those words of wisdom from the Venerable Archbishop Fulton J. Sheen on the topic of fear and anxiety and you can see how 30 million people would tune in each week to hear those messages of hope and encouragement He talked about topics that are important to us today and uh, still even though those shows were aired in the 1950s they still speak uh, to us dearly today they're very relevant in today's society and so we hope to share many more of those reflections with you Uh, we're now going to turn our attention to the catechism lessons that bishop sheen prepared many years ago and uh, he recorded these to vinyl uh, back in 1965 And so we're going to share with you now a lesson entitled, The Divinity of Christ. So please enjoy this catechism lesson.
1: Peace be to you. You remember that in a previous instruction, we said that our blessed Lord called himself both son of God and son of man, that he was both God and man. This is indeed a great mystery. It is what is called, actually, the mystery of the Incarnation. That word Incarnation means incarnate, in the flesh. It means that God assumed the human nature, that he was enfleshed, as it were. St. John has a very beautiful description of it. He says the Word became flesh. Now, the Word means, of course, God, or the Second Person of the Blessed Trinity. This is a difficult mystery, and we are going to try to explain it with a number of examples. When we say that God became man, we do not mean to say that heaven was empty. That would be to think of heaven as a kind of a space, like a room that was 20 by 30 feet. When God came to this world, he did not leave heaven empty. And when he came to this world, he was not shaved down, he was not whittled down to human proportions. He was rather... Christ was the life of God dwelling in human flesh. St. Thomas Aquinas has a very beautiful description of this in one of his hymns. He said, The heavenly word proceeding forth, yet leaving not the Father's side. Now let us begin with answering the question, Why did God become man? We limit ourselves to the historical order in which we live. The answer is, he became man in order to redeem us from sin. Therefore, we have to describe why it was necessary for God to become man to completely atone for our sins. Well, the answer is... Whenever we sin, we contract an infinite debt. But we cannot pay an infinite debt because we are finite and limited. Here is the reason. We will state it in the form of a kind of a principle and then we will give examples. Honor is in the one honoring. For example, Suppose a citizen of the United States, the mayor of a city, the governor of a state, and the president of the United States pay a visit to the Holy Father. Who pays the Holy Father the greater honor? The citizen or the president? Is it not the president? Honor is in the one honoring. Now, the other proposition, the other side of it is this. Guilt or sin is always measured by the one sinned against. If, for example, a citizen, a mayor, commits a felony or a crime or a tyranny, which is the greater sin? Guilt or sin is always measured by the one sinned against. If, therefore, the sin or the guilt was against, say, the President of the United States, obviously the mayor or the governor would be guilty of the greater sin, would he not? Now let us apply this to man. We have sinned. Against whom have we sinned? against God all right sin is measured by the one sinned against we sinned against God he is infinite therefore our guilt our sin is infinite now let's take the other proposition honor is in the one honoring we are going to try to pay that debt who is honoring God man but man is finite and limited is he not Well, if he's finite and limited, he cannot pay an infinite debt. Therefore, it is possible for man to contract an infinite debt and still never be able to pay it in strict justice. After all, that should not surprise us. It's very easy for all of us to run out greater debts than we can pay. All right, then, we have an infinite debt against God which we cannot pay. Now, could God forgive us? Could He say, Oh, forget it? It's nothing. Well, He might say, Forget it, but He could not say it is nothing. Suppose He did forgive us. He indeed would be merciful, but He would not satisfy justice. If we owe somebody $20, the debt can be forgiven. But justice is not satisfied unless we completely pay the debt. I can remember when I was a a boy, I often used to break the window of the next-door neighbor. And the next-door neighbor sometime would say, forget it. But somehow or other, I never just wanted to be let off. So I would go to my piggy bank, and I would take out my savings in order to pay for the broken window. So man does not just want to be let off by God. He has a sense of his own dignity, too. And he wants, in some way, to pay the debt which he owes to God, though he's unable to pay it. Now, how it is to be paid, we have yet to answer. If justice, as well as mercy, are to be satisfied, then God had to become man. First of all, why did he have to become man? Unless he became man, he could not be our representative. He could not stand for us. Man would not be paying the debt. Just suppose that I were arrested for speeding. Could you walk into the courtroom the moment that I was on trial and say, Judge, let him go. I will take it over. The judge would say to you, stay out of this. What have you got to do with this? You're not involved. Here's... So in as much as man is involved, and in as much as man has sinned, in some way, God has to share our nature, which sinned. And then furthermore, sin demands some kind of suffering and expiation. And if he ever became man, he could suffer as man, suffer in our name. But not only would he have to be man, but, of course, he would also have to be God. He would have to be man in order to act in our name. He would have to be God in order that the infinite debt could be paid by someone who was infinite. Every action, therefore, of God would have an infinite value. Therefore, the outrage against God could be atoned for. Furthermore, he would have to be God in order to be sinless. After all, if he were full of sin, he too would need redemption. No man can atone for his own sins. In conclusion, therefore, if both justice and mercy are to be satisfied, God would have to become man. Man to be one of us God, in order that he could pay the infinite debt. We can explain this in other terms, perhaps in the terms of the old nursery rhyme. Remember it. Humpty Dumpty sat on the wall. Humpty Dumpty had a great fall. And all the king's horses and all the king's men could never put Humpty Dumpty together again. Now, that rhyme pretty well expresses the condition of man as a result of sin. Since the fall of man, man is very much like a broken egg. He can't put himself together. There's some kind of a disorder inside of himself, and that is the reason why the mere arrangement of wealth and the social order outside of him is not going to change man himself he needs god to put him together again or another example the example of a clock whose mainspring is broken we have the works but somehow they just do not go what two conditions have to be fulfilled to make that clock work first the main sp- spring must be supplied from the outside. Two, the main spring must be placed inside of the clock. Man cannot redeem himself any more than that clock can fix itself. If man is ever to be redeemed, the redemption must come from without and must be done from within. It must come from without. Simply because we cannot, for example, if we are blind, never restore our vision. If we've broken communion with God by sin, we cannot restore it. Have you ever taken a rose petal into your fingers Pressed and squeezed the rose petal? Did you notice if you could ever restore its tint? You could not. Lift a dewdrop from a leaf. You could never replace it. An evil in like manner is just a little bit too deep-seated to be righted by a little bit of kindness here and there and a little reason and a little tolerance might just as well tell a man who's suffering from consumption that all he needs to do is play six sets of tennis. The clock whose mainspring is broken cannot repair itself. So salvation, therefore, has to come from without. Our human will is too weak to conquer its own evil. Just as the sick need medicine outside of themselves... We need a teacher for our minds. We need a physician for our bodies and we need a redeemer for our souls. A redeemer from outside humanity. Outside of humanity with all its weakness, its sin and its rebellion. Now let's take the other side. We said that if the mainspring is broken, a new mainspring has to be supplied from without but be put inside of the clock, and so too. Salvation must come from without humanity, but it has to be done in some way within humanity. So God, therefore, had to become man in order that man would be redeemed from within. God did not become man, he would have no relation to us. Man, as I said, does not want just to have his sins forgiven. He wants to atone for them. So God became man. Now you put these two conditions together. And you have the reason why the Redeemer should be both God and man. God from without. Man in order that he might be within humanity. That is the incarnation. God becoming man in the person of Christ in order that he might save us from our sins. Here we come to something just a little more difficult and we're going to use a word which you may not often hear We have to spend about six months when we are studying for the priesthood just studying the meaning of these words, hypostatic union. The hypostatic union means that there are in Christ two natures and one person. Now that's something you must always remember. bed it in your memory in your mind christ has two natures one human one divine they are both united in the person of god was god therefore a human person no He was a divine person. Did he have a human nature? Yes. Did he have a divine nature? Yes. And they were united in the divine person of God. Obviously, I am not using the word nature and person in the same sense. Am I? Perhaps we can make this clear. If you will take a pencil in your hand, I will wait for a minute until you put it into your fingers. Now, that pencil has a nature, has it not? In other words, it's the nature of a thing that writes. A nature is a thing, it's something that operates... For example, cow has the nature. Pig has a nature. Carpet has a nature. A pigeon has the nature. Your finger has a nature. But is a cow a person? If your cow comes over into my pasture and eats all of my grass, I cannot sue the cow. I could sue you. There, therefore, must be some difference between a nature and a person. And this is the difference. A person is a source of responsibility. The dog is not responsible for his actions, but man is. Now, that is a very simple definition of a nature and a person, but perhaps it will suffice us for the moment. Now, using the pencil that you have in your hand, do you notice that there are before you two natures? One, the nature of the pencil. The other, the nature of your hand. Is your hand a person? No. Because you could lose your hand and still be yourself, could you not? Therefore, we have in the hand now, combined with the pencil, two natures. How are they united? in your one person. So it is possible to have a union of two natures in one person. You have a body, you have a soul. They're very different in nature. One is material and the other is spiritual. And yet you're only one person. That too is a very incomplete and imperfect analogy of what happens. But returning now to our pencil. The pencil of and by itself cannot write. You put it down on a chair or a table before you. That pencil cannot write, can it? Now you bring your hand down to that pencil. You have the union of two natures and one person. Now the pencil can write, can it not? It can do something that it could not do before. And when it writes, do you say the pencil writes or I write? You do not say my eye sees you. You say I see you. You do not say my ear hears you. I hear you. You do not say my stomach digests. I digest food. Notice that we are always attributing the actions of a nature to a person. That is why if you sign a check, there is responsibility involved and neither the hand nor the pencil are the sources of that responsibility. Now let us apply the analogy down the pencil again on the table that pencil of and by itself cannot write that pencil is like man he cannot pay the debt he owes to God now put your hand in the air bring it down slowly to that pencil pick up the pencil Here you have a union of the nature of the hand which is united with your person and the nature of a pencil. Now the pencil can do something which by itself it could not do. So the hand with your personality coming down to that pencil represents the person of God and the divine nature coming down to human nature. And when God comes down and takes upon himself a human nature, unites it with his divine nature and divine person, you have the union of two natures, namely the nature of God, the nature of man, in the unity of the person of God. And now, just as that pencil could do something which of and by itself it could not do, so human nature united with the person of God can now begin to do something which of and by itself it could not do before. A pencil is the instrument of my personality, and so when God, with his divine nature, came down to this world and took upon himself a human nature from the womb of his blessed mother, he took upon himself an instrument. Once God took upon himself our human nature, he could act in our name every one of the actions of that human nature would have an infinite value. Not a sigh, a word, a tear, a step of that human nature was inseparable from the person of God. That is why one breath of God made man would have been enough to redeem the world. Why? Because it was the breath of God and therefore had an infinite value. But why then did God suffer so much when he took upon himself our human nature? Well, there are more grains of sand in this world than are necessary. And so... Love knows no limits, and the only way to prove perfect love is by a surrender of all that one has, and so God took upon himself our human nature, and he said he loved us unto the end, even unto death. Now you see the beauty and the majesty, do you not Why, when he became man, Bethel took upon himself the form of a babe, what did we have? Why, he who was born without a mother in heaven is born without a father on earth. He who made the world was born in it. Maker of the sun under the sun. Molder of the earth on the earth, ineffably wise, a little infant, filling the world, lying in a manger, ruling the stars, nursed by his mother. mirth of heaven weeps God becomes man divinity incarnate eternity time Lord scourged power bound with ropes king crowned with thorns and if you were the only person in the world who ever lived in sin, He would have come down to this earth and died and suffered just for you alone. That is how much he loves you.
0: God love. You are listening to Radio Maria Canada. We now continue with the program... Your life is worth living. Hosted by Al Smith. Hello, Radio Maria family. It is Al Smith here, and I hope you enjoyed these two reflections we shared with you today uh, on the topics of fear and anxiety and the divinity of Christ. If you'd like to re-listen to this broadcast, by all means, please visit me on the web at uh, my SoundCloud or MixCloud platform, and you'll find me as the Pipe Padre. So just Google Al Smith the Pipe Padre and there you'll see many years of Bishop Sheen shows that have produced, including this one for Radio Maria Canada. We'd ask you to spread the word and uh, bring a friend next week. And we want to thank our good friends at FultonSheen.com who have provided us with these quality recordings today. Uh, You can visit them on the web and, of course, they have the best selection of anyone on the Internet. And uh, by all means, just for pennies, you can have the whole collection. So again, that is FultonSheen.com. And so until next week, may the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord let his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord look upon you kindly and bring you peace. You have been listening to Your Life is Worth Living, hosted by Al Smith, here on Radio Maria Canada.